Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, 2 Samuel chapter 12, continued. Well, we're going to continue to go slow as the crucial God patterns and principles absolutely gush out of the pages of 2 Samuel as it concerns the David and Bathsheba affair. And in order to understand them, we're, we're necessarily going to have to connect them with earlier as well as later scripture and, and events. Now when we last met, David had just received news from the prophet Nathan of the judgment from God on account of his terrible sins of adultery and even murder. And yet, ironically, at the same time, David was given the good news that he was forgiven. And he was also promised that he would not die for those sins. How can that be? There seems to be a conflict between the notions that God is punishing David with consequences for his sin, at the same time, he's forgiving him for those sins. And this conundrum has caused both Judaism and Christianity the greatest of troubles in trying to sort out what it means for us in our time. Judaism basically sees it as a special divine favoritism towards David, and Christianity sees what happened as an abolished and no longer valid practice of God from times past. Now, as humans are wont to do, we tend to make, or rather take, a troubling matter like this one and make an overly simple doctrine to cover it, or better, to cover over it. <clears throat> One that works well within the hierarchy and context of our other faith doctrines that will govern a particular sect or denomination. Thus, especially in the more contemporary evangelical branch of the Western Church, although by no means is it limited to that branch, the theological thought generally is that since the Father has forgiven our sins based upon our trust in Jesus, then whatever divine punishment might normally have been expected to accompany it, in the end, we don't suffer any punishment at all. Salvation in Christ equals remittance from sins, which equals exemption from punishment, wrath, or retribution. That's the general theological thought. Now, I would argue that the Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, give us a little bit different picture than that. Okay. I would argue that the biblical pattern from beginning to end is that while trust in God indeed opens the door for grace and forgiveness, it doesn't automatically pardon us from the earthly consequences of our wrongful actions. Actions defined as sins. 
The biblical pattern and direct commands from Jehovah make it clear that sin always demands a payment. And that sin and punishment occurs on two levels, spiritual and physical. There is little better illustration of that principle of duality than what we read here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So let's reread a portion of chapter 12 and we're going to discuss this a little bit more. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, page uh, 345 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start and just read verses 9 through 23. 2 Samuel 12, starting at verse 9. So, why have you shown such contempt? for the word of Adonai, and done what I see as evil. You murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife as your own wife, and you put him to death with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword will never leave your house, because you have shown contempt for me. You've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own wife. Here is what Adonai says. I will generate evil against you out of your own household. I will take your wives before your very eyes. I'll give them to your neighbor. He'll go to bed with your wives and everybody will know about it. For you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. David said to Natan, Oh, I have sinned against Adonai. And Natan said to David, But Adonai has also taken away your sin you will not die. However, because by this act you have so greatly blasphemed Adonai, the child born to you must die. Then Natan returned to his house. Adonai struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. It became very ill. David prayed to God on behalf of the child. David fasted and then came and lay all night on the ground. The court officials got up and stood next to him trying to get him up off the ground, but he refused. He wouldn't eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that his child was dead because they said, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he wouldn't listen to us. If we tell him now that the child is dead, he he may do himself some harm. But when David saw his servants whispering to each other, he suspected that the child was dead. And David asked his servants, Is the child dead? And they answered, He is dead. Well, then David got up off the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes. He went into the house of Adonai and worshipped. And then he went to his own palace. And when he asked for food... They served it to him and he ate. His servants asked him, What are you doing? You fasted and wept for the child while it was alive, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat food? He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, Maybe Adonai will show his grace to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, 
I'll go to him, but he will not return to me. In our last lesson, we learned that there is a vast gulf between belief in God and trust in God. And so there is an equally vast gulf between forgiveness of sins and pardon of earthly consequences or punishment for those sins. One may even call them natural consequences, I suppose. Last week we learned that belief is the level of relationship between God and His created beings that even the demons possess. Belief is merely acknowledgement of Jehovah's existence, perhaps even of His nature and His sovereignty. But belief does not include appropriate worship of Him or of appropriate response to Him. Trust is when we allow belief to turn to God-centered inner transformation of our hearts. Paul calls this a circumcision of our hearts. And then that produces obedience. Obedience opens the door to grace. And grace is the means of God's forgiveness. It's the same idea in drawing a distinction between forgiveness of sins and what the consequences are for those sins, if any. Forgiveness of sins takes place in the spiritual realm. It's what believers think of as the eternal or the heavenly. However, sin itself, especially when we consider it in terms of wrongful behavior, occurs on two levels simultaneously. The physical level, which is the actual behavior and its effect upon others, or even ourselves, And the spiritual level. Sin, even wrongful behavior towards others, is first and foremost a trespass against God and His holiness. Thus notice what happens to David. He is told that his sin has been forgiven and he will not die. However, as a consequence of his sin, his infant son will die and the sword will never leave his household. And just so we don't misunderstand about whom it is that's going to bring about these punishments upon David, verses 11 and 12 says, I... God will generate evil against you out of your own household. I I don't think I know how much more directly it can be said. God generating evil against you in consequence for your sins is the very definition of divine punishment. So what does it mean then when God tells David he's not going to die? Certainly it's not a promise that he's going to become physically immortal and never go to the grave. 
And equally as certain, this is not talking about David being executed for his crime by means of civil procedure according to the law. See, the Hebrew word here is mut. And it absolutely means to die physically. Here's the sense that we're to make of this statement. It is that David will not die as a wicked sinner in God's eyes and thus descend to Gehenna. Instead, he will certainly die of an old age as all men, wicked or righteous, are appointed to do once. And he will, he will indeed go to Sheol, the grave, where all men go. David will not die in unrighteousness and thus his eternal essence will not come to an end upon his physical death and into one's eternal essence is what Hebrews thought happened to the wicked dead now of course there is no mention in here is there of dying and going to heaven but also no threat of dying and not going to heaven And this is because there was no concept of connecting death with heaven in this era. And that makes sense. Because until Messiah came and through the sacrifice of His own blood sufficiently cleansed the righteous dead as well as those who were living and who believed upon Him, even the righteous could not be allowed into God's holy presence in heaven. Instead, they would have to reside in Abraham's bosom, a sort of safe and pleasant holding chamber for those who died in righteousness until that moment that the Messiah finally came and freed them. Now at the same time, during David's life and then even after his death, David's family has been ordained as a direct punishment upon David to suffer calamities. And of course, his family's calamities grieve David perhaps more than any other family member because because he's acutely aware that these disasters that will befall his his wives and children and grandchildren, his aunts, his uncles and others They're a result of his sin. That's a tough one. And all of this is in the name of God's justice, which can never be averted. All sin demands a payment on two levels. The spiritual and the physical. God gave spiritual grace to David. He forgave him. So David will not suffer the spiritual effects of his sin, the eternal effects, the effects that come against him after his physical death. God does this because the spiritual part of sin is that part whereby we have wronged God. But at the same time, that spiritual grace doesn't necessarily extend to the physical consequences of sin, God's earthly justice, because that's the part 
whereby we have usually wronged a fellow human being by means of cheating, stealing, murder, adultery, bearing false witness, deception, so on and so forth. Thus, by all means, God will punish believers for our sins, but that punishment doesn't include death. And the kind of death that it does not include is the same kind as David avoided. Death in our wickedness, which would disqualify us from eternal life. A believer, as did David, will of course die physically at some point. But David did not suffer a judicial death. He was not cut off due to his criminal behavior. A judicial death, biblically speaking, means death as a punishment for wrongdoing, breaking a law of Moses. And this was done at the hands of a human government. And that death is often called the death of the unrighteous in the Bible. Yeshua did not do anything to end that kind of physical death. Nor did Messiah's crucifixion and God's physical consequences upon us for behavioral sin on this earth end. Rather, Christ's death paid the price for our trespasses against God. Not necessarily against men. You see the difference? Here's a way to picture this. His death paid the price for our sin on only one of those two levels. The part that settles our heavenly account with God for sinning against Him. However, the part whereby our sin includes our wrongful behavior to our fellow man is not pardoned but rather demands that earthly part of the payment. Punishment is due us. Oh, listen. We may well receive mercy from the Lord because I guarantee you I'm living proof of it. And the consequence is punishment we all hope will never equal the damage we do to one another or what we deserve. But there will be consequences and there may be a time that comes in the future a time that we might never expect when it will suddenly appear. At other times, the punishment might even be greater than what it seems like our our crime merited, at least in our own eyes. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read from Acts 4.32 all the way to 5.11. Uh, page 1365 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. All of the many believers were one in heart and soul, and no one claimed any of his possessions for himself, but everyone shared everything he had. 
With great power, the emissaries continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and they were all held in high regard. No one among them was poor, since those who owned lands or houses sold them and turned over the proceeds to the emissaries to distribute each according to his need. Thus Joseph, whom the emissaries called Barnabah, which means the exhorter, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him, and he brought the money to the emissaries. Continuing in chapter 5. But there was a man named Haniah, who with his wife, Chaparah, sold some property, and with his wife's knowledge, withheld some of the proceeds for himself, although he did bring the rest to the emissaries. Then Kepha, Peter said, Why has the adversary so filled your heart that you lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the money you received for the land? Before you sold it, the property was yours. After you sold it, the money was yours to use as you pleased. So what made you decide to do such a thing? You've lied not to human beings, but to God. And on hearing these words, Ananias fell down dead. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. And the young men got up and wrapped his body in a shroud, carried him out and buried him. But some three hours later, his wife came in, unaware of what had happened. Peter challenged her, now tell me, is it true that you sold that land for such and such a price? And yes, she answered, that is what we paid for it. But Peter came back at her. Then why did you people plot to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the men who buried your husband are at the door. They're going to carry you out too. Instantly, she collapsed at his feet and died. The young men entered, found her dead there, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. As a result of this, great fear came over the whole Messianic community and indeed over everyone who heard about it. Yikes. Here is a perfect example of two believers among the Messianic community who committed a sin and instantly lost their lives for it. The sin and their death for it cannot be wished away. Anyone, I mean, can anyone among us say that this was divine discipline and not divine punishment? And they lost their lives, you see, over an issue of deceit and material possessions. It really had actually more to do with stealing holy property, but that's too much to go into here. But it doesn't really change its effect either. And this episode scared the daylights out of the Messianic community because I suspect they may have thought, some in the community may have thought, as does some denominations' doctrines claim, that God's grace had brought with it not only eternal forgiveness for sins, but it abolished all earthly consequences for sins as well. In fact, we find in Romans 6, Paul addressing this issue, which means apparently some of the believing community did think 
that once you were saved, you could sin freely with no divine consequences whatsoever. Romans 6.1 So then are we to say, let's just keep on sinning so that we can get more grace. Heaven forbid. How about the two criminals that died alongside Messiah that dreadful day at Golgotha? Turn your Bibles to Luke 23. Luke 23. We're going to start reading at verse 32. So that's on page 1326 of your complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read uh, verses 32, 33, 34, and then we're going to skip to 39 and read through 43. two other men both criminals were led out to be executed with him Messiah and when they came to the place called the skull they nailed him to a stake and they nailed the criminals to stakes one on the right one on the left and Yeshua said Father forgive them they don't understand what they're doing skip down to 39 One of the criminals hanging there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other one spoke up and rebuked the first one saying, Have you no fear of God? You're getting the same punishment as He is. Ours is fair. We're getting what we deserve for what we did. But this man did nothing wrong. Then he said, Yeshua... Remember me when you come as king. And Yeshua said to him, Yes, I promise that you will be with me today in Gan Eden. One of the criminals who admitted that he deserved to die for his criminal act, but who recognized that Yeshua was exactly who he claimed to be, was forgiven in verse 43 by Yeshua. But he still died for his crime. The spiritual component of his criminal act was pardoned. Not the earthly part. Nowhere do we see Yeshua saying that the criminal, now that he was forgiven, no longer deserved to die. Nor do we see something happen that might save him physically. Nor do we ever find record of this story that explains that God's forgiveness should have erased all the earthly justice due to that forgiven criminal. I must tell you, and I suspect risk offending some of you, I imagine, that I cannot accept the doctrine that insists that God's punishment upon His worshippers has been abolished. Or that all consequences we should actually label as discipline. And that discipline must never be viewed as punishment. Oh yes, it is said, I did commit a terrible sin and as a direct result I I lost my wife or I lost my job or, or I lost my ministry. But because God loves me, then I won't 
call those circumstances and consequences punishment. I shall call them discipline. Fine, that's great. But truly, that is a flawed argument of semantics. And I think, unfortunately, it's but another attempt to uphold a man-made doctrine in order to displace God's truth because we much prefer our comfortable doctrines that are more to our liking than to his sometimes difficult truth. God loved David, but he punished him. God loved Ananias and Sapphira. They were saved. They were believers, but they were punished severely. Oh, but it gets even more dicey. In verse 15, we read, Adonai struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. Why did God kill David's innocent child? Sin always demands a payment. And since David's sin included blood guilt, and since Jehovah decided that David would not lose his own life to pay for that blood guilt, and by the way, David was quite glad for that, then only another human life could satisfy God's perfect justice. Further, the condemned child was a product of David's adultery. The child was a physical result of his contempt. God's word, not mine. Contempt for God, and thus God decided it could not remain. There is also another God principle and pattern at play in the death of David's baby son. It's called, it's been given the name by scholars of vertical retribution. Vertical retribution, in fact, can put the punishment for trespassing against the Lord upon descendants even several generations removed from from when the trespass occurred. Now, we discussed this at length in our study of the Torah. So if you want to review the lesson from Numbers 15, you can get a much more detailed explanation of this than I'm going to give you today. This is something that sounds perhaps strange to us, but it was real. It was God-ordained. It was practiced by the Hebrews. Modern believers occasionally talk about generational curses that are the result not of what the affected person might have done, but of something that person's father or mother or grandparents or perhaps an even earlier ancestor might have done. And there are those who fervently pray. I believe it's been given to them by the Lord to pray on behalf of others that these generational curses might be lifted. But this is not the same thing as pinning the father's sin on the son and vice versa because that is prohibited by the law of Moses and it's further expanded upon in the New Testament. See, that's called transgenerational 
punishment. The difference between the law against transgenerational punishment and vertical retribution is that vertical retribution is not part of the civil or the criminal law code. Vertical retribution is decided upon and carried out entirely supernaturally by God at His prerogative. Men play no role in it. The law banning transgenerational punishment, on the other hand, has to do with humans carrying out the justice system that the Lord has established. If, for example, a father committed a murder the son cannot be held as a legal substitute in court. The court cannot order the son to be executed. Only the perpetrator is liable for his own capital offense when being judged by human judges. However, notice that David's and Bathsheba's baby got sick and it died almost immediately after its birth. There was no human hand involved. The child had committed no civil offense. He was under no civil punishment. Rather, just as verse 15 says, God struck the child. Adonai struck the child. David had been spared the death penalty, but since sin has to be paid for in like kind, David's child lost its life at God's hand because he had some deep purposes for it. Vertical retribution, not transgenerational punishment. Verse 16 explains that when David got word that the newborn was ill, he began to earnestly pray and fast to the point that his royal court got terribly concerned. I mean, let's be clear. Every time one of David's many children got sick, he didn't pray and fast and stay up all night lying on the floor. David knew perfectly well that Bathsheba's baby was marked for death because of his sin. He hoped that perhaps by showing incredible and very unkingly Humility before the Lord, pleading for its life that the Lord might relent and show mercy. The royal court was baffled by David's actions because they had no idea about this curse from God that had been placed upon David's household. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what David knew. When the baby died... David did the opposite. He got up, washed himself, ate, and went back to work. Now David's court was even more mystified. Since when the baby was alive, he behaved as though he was mourning. And now that the baby has died, David behaves as if no death had occurred at all. There's some disagreement over whether the statement about the baby dying on the seventh day means the seventh day of its illness or that the baby was one week old. Either way, the baby was a newborn. And the significance of the number seven is 
that its death was of divine order and completeness. God had ordained this baby's death as punishment for his father's sin. Now it's done. The folks around David would have recognized the significance of seven days. Even if they weren't quite sure what the divine issue was. Now, in reality, no mourning period was required. Because the baby was not yet a month old. So David broke no law or tradition by not mourning anyway. The tradition is that an infant of less than one month of age was not given person status. And so no mourning was ordained if it died. Now certainly there would have been a lot of grief and sorrow expressed, but it would have been informal. Let's reread the last few verses now of 2 Samuel chapter 12. See, we left off at 23. Okay, we'll start reading at 24. David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. He came to her and went to bed with her, and she gave birth to a son named Shlomo, Solomon. Adonai loved him and sent through Nathan the prophet to have him named Yedidah, loved by God, Jedidiah, for Adonai's sake. Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. Joab sent people to David with this message, I have fought against Rabbah, I have captured its water supply, therefore assemble the rest of the people, lay siege to the city and capture it, otherwise I'll capture the city and it will be named after me. David assembled all the people, went to Rabbah, fought against it and captured it. He took the crown off Malcolm's head. It weighed 66 pounds. With its gold and precious stones, it was placed on David's head. He carried off great quantities of spoil from the city. In addition, he expelled the people who were in it. He set them to work with saws, iron harrows, iron axes, or had them cross over to work in the brick factory. This is what he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Any mother would have been grief-stricken over the death of her infant child that she'd carried inside of her all those 40 weeks, regardless of the circumstances surrounding its conception. Bathsheba was no different. David comforted Bathsheba, and in the process she conceived and bore another child, Solomon. Now we all know that Solomon would become the next king of Israel. It was apparently destined that Bathsheba was to be the queen mother. I find it fascinating that the child born to Bathsheba due to unfaithfulness was not allowed to become the son who would become the next king. Yet in God's mercy, when that baby died, her next child would be David's successor. Why couldn't that first baby have lived and then the next son, Solomon, born to a properly wed, David and Bathsheba have been declared the successor? I mean, despite the customary and sacred rites 
of the firstborn, Israel's history is rife with the firstborn being passed over for another son, his heir. It reminds one of Abraham. Abraham impregnated Sarah's Egyptian handmaiden, Hagar, as a result of unfaithfulness, by the way, on Sarah and Abraham's part. And the result was Ishmael. It was a given that Abraham had to produce an heir. But for the Lord, the circumstances of Hagar's pregnancy were not in keeping with his plan. So later, Sarah gets pregnant, gives birth to uh, to Isaac, but the Lord determined that Ishmael had to be sent away. Thus Abraham's firstborn, much beloved firstborn, Ishmael was bypassed for his secondborn, Isaac. Now in Hebrew, Solomon is Shlomo, meaning something like he is peace. Now very interestingly, we read that God gave Solomon another name, Yehdidyah, Jedidiah, that means loved by God. The scriptures make it clear that this was a name sent from God to David through the prophet Nathan. Now interestingly, we we find that we only hear of this child ever being called Shlomo and not Yedidyah. I think the reason for that is, is easily explainable. The child's formal given name is Shlomo, but his title or his reputation was Yedidyah, loved by God. I've taught you in past lessons that one of the senses of the word love in the Bible is acceptance. Just as one of the senses of the word hate is rejection. And I'm fairly certain that the point that's trying to be made here is that God sent word to David that God accepts this child. In other words, this is the son who God accepts, who God has chosen as the next anointed king of Israel, as opposed to any other. Now verse 26 ends, abruptly ends this matter of David and Bathsheba and it returns to the military situation that's been ongoing, by the way, throughout all of this palace intrigue. The siege of Rabbah has been in process for quite a long time, probably on again, off again, for according to the seasons. And it had started well before David had ever even spied Bathsheba. You remember that? But now, after at least a couple of years, the end was near. Joab sent word that he'd made a significant breakthrough. He had captured the city's water supply. And with that, it was a matter of no more than a few short weeks before the people would have to surrender or die of thirst. The city of Rabbah seems to have been divided into two parts, the royal city and the main city. The royal portion was where the water source existed. Yoav's message to David wasn't really as disrespectful as it kind of sounds to us. 
It's only that David didn't have time to procrastinate or lollygag, all right, as he'd been doing for some years now about these sorts of things. If David wanted to get the credit for this great battle victory, his long fight that had been going on, he was going to have to come right now. Any day, the siege-weary citizens of Rabah were going to give up, and they were going to surrender to Yoav, unless David got there quickly, and thus Yoav would get all the credit, and Hail the Conqueror would be sung to him. So wisely, Joab notifies David and gives the king the choice. Naturally, David needs all the good PR he can get right about now considering that messy Bathsheba affair that was all the talk of the region. Nothing takes the citizenry's mind off of domestic problems more than a good war. And hopefully a good war victory. That's never changed much, has it? It was 50 miles from Yerushalayim to Rabbah, So David takes a large force and he heads out for the siege. And in an odd way, this shows that David had at least learned some lessons. He led the force himself and he went to the battlefield as he should. On the other hand, there was an ulterior motive. The battle was already virtually won and he was going there merely to get the credit. Now, verse 30 is a curious one. It speaks of David taking the crown off of the king of Rabbah's head and placing it on his own. That isn't what's odd. What's odd is that the crown weighed one full talent. A talent from that era, as you can see from what we read in the complete Jewish Bible, is not necessarily totally agreed on most scholars will say that it was around 70 pounds. Later in New Testament times, the talent measurement would be revised. And so in Jesus' era, it would be the equivalent of about 120 pounds. Nonetheless, it's unimaginable that a king could possibly wear a crown that weighed 70 pounds. Well, the solution to this can be found when we look at the word often translated as Malcom, as it is in our complete Jewish Bibles. The king of Ammon, who was wearing the crown in 2 Samuel, Malcom. But it's translated differently in 1 Kings 11. Listen to this, 1 Kings 11.33. I will do this because they have abandoned me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. They haven't lived according to my ways so that they could do what was right in my view and obey my rules and uh, rulings and regulations as David his father. Here, Milcom, M-I-L-K-O-M, is the equivalent of Malcom, M-A-L-K-A-M, is called the god of the people of Ammon. Rabbah was the capital city of Ammon. Milcom is an alternate spelling now of the name Molech, 
who was the official chief god of Ammon. And Molech is just another name for Baal, and among other peoples he's known as Chemosh. So what we see happening in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is that David has taken this fabulously valuable, this enormous crown off of the head of the Molech idol. Okay? And he sets, upon it, sets it upon his own head for a moment as symbolic of Israel's God's victory over the Ammonite God. Very customary for that era. Well, this chapter ends in controversy. There are some serious translation issues surrounding this last verse. There are two trains of thought regarding the meaning. and So the older English translations, I underline English translations, make it that David used saws, iron instruments, and axes to brutalize, torture, and kill the civilians, not only of Rabbah, but of every substantial city and village throughout Ammon. Further, that David also burned some of the Ammonites alive, passed them through the fire. Some of the newer English translations such as our complete Jewish Bible, however, make it that David used all the people of Ammon as laborers, put them to work using axes, iron implements, saws, and fiery kilns to dry bricks. In other words, David put them to work on construction projects to help build up Israel. Now, such a thing as mindless, bloody genocide upon helpless civilian populations is hard to fathom in this case from a number of viewpoints. First off, every king wanted more laborers for his projects. David was a smart man. He had thousands of skilled laborers at hand if he wanted them. Why would he throw it all away? Second, there is no record of such an atrocity occurring outside of the questionable English translations of this passage. Third, God gave no orders to massacre conquered people who lived outside of the Promised Land. And Ammon was over in the Transjordan. Fourth, while one might argue that this pitiless massacre that could be used maybe to frighten nearby nations from attempting to take on Israel. It could just as easily have roused them to band together to take righteous action against such blatant barbarism. You know, it's one thing to annihilate the enemy's army. It's quite another to slaughter a population that surrendered. And finally... God never asks his army to make the deaths of the enemy, especially non-combatants, as painful and brutal as possible. That David would think it pious to saw people in half, cut off limbs with axes, burn people alive, and so on, just doesn't fit any God pattern that we've seen to this point. I have no doubt that David used the people of Ammon as forced labor. 
and it accounts for why he was suddenly able to just grow and expand his kingdom so rapidly in the second half of his reign. Uh, of his reign. We'll begin chapter 13 next week.